0: This is Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We'll look at the first 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together, under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Please pray with me before we... uh, Try and unpack this thing, um, if you would. Uh, Father, I pray that in these next few moments, as we uh, turn our attention to this passage, that you would help us. Uh, Father, even just reading it, it sounds dense. I, I pray that you would help us to make sense of this in these, in these next few moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here's the question. Uh, what is it that you get really excited about uh, in life? W- what is it that absolutely thrills you? Uh, for me... It's a double rainbow. Um, uh, it's beginning to look like a triple rainbow, though. It's, uh, it's so intense. Uh, it, it, if you don't know what I'm referencing, um, uh, join the club, because there's 12 million people that know what I'm referencing. Um, there is this YouTube clip where this guy... Uh, comes upon, I guess it's in his backyard or something, a, a double rainbow all the way, where it's uh, these two double rainbows. And if you've seen the video, for like five minutes he's screaming and crying and freaking out about how amazing it is. What does it mean? It's so intense. And, you know, he just he goes nuts. And so, you know, everybody's talking like there's no way anybody could have that much unadulterated joy about something. He had to have been on something. And so he assures you no on the internet. He says, no, I was, I was really just caught up in the moment of seeing a double rainbow all the way. <laughs> and, uh, you know... I, You know, I think about that and I just, and I wonder, what would it be like to actually have that kind of response to something where you are caught up in that much just wonder and joy about something where you're literally like screaming and crying and laughing all at the same moment as you're caught up in this thing. Now, why am I talking about this? Because uh, we're working our way through the book of Ephesians this semester. And one of the reasons why I think you need it and why I need it, why... I mean, why would we want to come in here and sit and open up this thing and actually focus for the next 25 minutes or so on this weird, obscure, old text? Why would we want to do this? Here's why. Because I think if we're honest, a lot of us are bored out of our mind with Christianity. If you're somebody who identifies yourself as a Christian, my guess is is that for a lot of you, it's just not doing the trick anymore. Or in other words... You may think that Christianity is uh, this thing that has been really uh, reduced down to learning some weird insider lingo, uh, getting really emotionally riled up during music, which by the way the rest of the world finds unbelievably strange, and you think it's about living by this restricting moral code, which basically boils down to, here are the things that I have to do, which is read my Bible every day, go to church every week, uh, pray without ceasing, and listen to Christian music. And here are the things that I can't do, which is uh, can't smoke, can't drink, can't cuss, can't have sex. And that's Christianity for you. That's what you think Christianity is. And so, of course, you're bored out of your mind with it. You thought Christian, I mean, you began Christian, the Christian life with this enthusiasm and excitement over entering into this exciting world, and you find yourself in this cramped cul-de-sac of boredom and routine. And so, of course, there's nothing exciting for you in it anymore. And if you're somebody who doesn't identify yourself as a Christian, you haven't found anything exciting about Christianity either, mostly because of the way that Christians make you feel like you are satanic or subhuman because of the way that you choose to live your life. And your only exposure to Christians is old men yelling at you on your way to math class, which if that hasn't happened yet, it will, just wait. I mean, that's... Or your only exposure to Christianity is some really enthusiastic young Christian who is making a project out of you by trying to rope you to church all the time or strike up weird conversations about Jesus and your eternal destination without taking the time to actually get to know you and care for you. And of course, you're not interested in Christianity either. But you see, both of these groups are experiencing the same thing. They have not found something about Christianity to get excited about. There is no emotional response that they are attracted to. But what I want you to see in this passage tonight is Paul is absolutely freaking out with excitement. I mean, it's almost like he's looking at a double rainbow. He is so thrilled and freaking out. Because, here's where I get this from. If you look in your passage from verse 3 all the way to verse 14, in the original language is one sentence. We break it up into, you know, in our English into different like, sentences just so we can help make sense of it. But in the original language, he starts and strings together 203 words together. He just starts and can't stop because he's freaking out and he's so excited. It's kind of like um, that show Glee where, um, uh, where nobody's doing anything and then all of a sudden somebody will just pop out and start singing and uh, everybody's like... Who just starts singing? I mean, who does that? And you know, everybody's like, what's going on? But by the end, everybody's joining in and singing, and they're doing these spontaneous things. that Everybody's caught up in singing and dancing together. And Paul is here bursting at the seams, and he is wanting us to join in on what is going on with him because he's freaking out and he's excited. But the question is, what is he so excited about? And so what I want to do for the rest of the time is just look at this massive chunk of this enormous sentence and figure out what he's so excited about. And if we look at it, uh, there are three main things that are at the heart of this enormous sentence. And here they are. Uh, election, adoption, and unification. Which, by the way, I'm getting a lot of this from one of my friends, Les Newsom. So, props to Les. But um, uh, you can follow along in your, ha- in, in your handout down there at the bottom with the outline. But what I want to do is I just want to look through these one at a time and try to make some sense out of this hyperly, long, run-on sentence, okay? So here's the first thing that Paul gets so excited about. The past reality of election. So let me just read it in verse uh, four and five again. He says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And if you also jump down to verse 11, he says it again. In him... We were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Okay, Here's what Paul is getting at. Here's what he thinks. Before he thought of God, he had already been thought of by God. Before he had made any moves towards God, God had been the one that was pursuing him. God had been the one that had been making moves towards him. Before Paul ever even loved God, he was loved by God. And that's sort of is what is at the heart of this word of election or predestination is this idea that before the creation of the world God had his heart set on his people and Paul is freaking out and excited about it. Now, uh, just to be honest with you, I kind of wanted to sidestep around this little controversial atomic bomb that's sitting right here in the middle of this uh, passage. Uh, but I can't, because Paul doesn't. I mean, if you look, it's like the first thing out of his mouth, and this is the thing that spins him in the direction of turning the sentence into like a firework grand finale, right? I mean, he gets really excited about this, so we have to hear him out. But here's the thing. There are lots of uh, very smart and very godly Christian thinkers who don't think that that's what Paul means. They think, this doesn't make any sense. Why would God, just unconditionally pick people. That seems very unfair, right? If you think about it, it also kind of goes against the grain of your experience. I mean, if you're somebody who is a Christian, it certainly felt like you chose God at some point, right? You believed in him. Or if you're somebody who's not a Christian, it certainly feels like that decision kind of rests on your shoulders. Like, I I get to choose whether or not I believe in God and follow him or not, right? So what people have done is they said... uh, there's got to be a reason why God would do this, why God would choose people. And so the two ideas that are most popular that people have come up with, uh, I, I just want to look at real quick. The first is the idea that God chooses who he chooses based off of their goodness. In other words, it's kind of like uh, you're at a grocery store and you, over, you, you look over the busted, gross apples and you pick the good ones, right? Right. So here's why this doesn't really work. Look at um, verse 4 with me again. It says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. God doesn't choose his people because they were good. He chooses them in order to make them good. I mean, it, it, it assumes that we were unholy and blameworthy. And the holiness and the blamelessness is not the reason God chooses his people. It is the result You tracking with me? And this goes against the whole grain of the Bible because the Bible says God can't choose anybody that's good because there are no good people, right? So this option doesn't really fit. The other main idea that people have said, here's why God chooses who he chooses. It's based off of their faith. In other words, he knows the future. He looks down the corridor of time and he sees who's going to believe in him and who's going to respond to him and those are the people that he chooses. Now, we could sit around and talk about this all night and we're not going to hang out with me, we'll grab coffee, let's chat about it. I know these are enormously hard pills to swallow, but here's why I think that doesn't work either. I just, I just want to respond to that with a question. If that is the explanation behind why God chooses people, it's, it's only after we first chose him, do you think that would re- create the kind of exuberant joy that Paul is experiencing in this passage? I don't think it would. Because if your relationship on God with God is based on anything in you, anything that you have done, you will be filled with anxiety and insecurity and worry. I mean, just think about it from your uh, the the way that y'all relate to each other, girls. If uh, your boyfriend only likes you because you are beautiful, and he's kind of got himself a trophy girlfriend because you know you're attractive, um, what happens when your beauty fades? You know, everything on that relationship crumbles if that's what's the basis of the relationship. Or, you know, for everybody else, if your parents or your professors only affirm you when you are successful, what happens when you fail? You see what happens if you centralize your relationship with somebody based on conditions, it is now go time to live up to those conditions because if you do not meet them, then the whole relationship falls apart, right? And this is the way it relates to your relationship with God. If God relates to you based off of something that you have done or you have generated, you are now in a really precarious position because now you know that your relationship could be lost if you didn't continue to live up to this standard, live up to the quality of faith that you were able to muster. This is filled with insecurity. I don't think it works. It works. But when you begin to understand what Paul is talking about, about real election, about the fact that God knew you and loved you before the creation of the world, this is absolute security. Bring your insecurity and your anxiety and your worry to that. It can't hold it. It can't hold it. God loves you simply because he loves you. And it is not based on your performance. If it was based on your performance, I mean, good luck. You're going to be stressed out and worried the rest of your life. But if it is based on the fact of something in God, this is the end of insecurity. This is also the end of pride, by the way. Meaning, uh, it's not based on your performance. You didn't generate the faith. You didn't. You weren't good enough. It's based on what God has done. And so this completely flattens all of humanity, where you realize, okay, I didn't earn my way into this relationship. When you begin to grasp this, this is what gives you the confidence and the boldness because you are secure. And it gives you a humility and a gentleness because it's not based on your performance. And this is, this is what creates people who are confident and yet humble at the same exact time. And only this idea about election can do that. I mean, isn't it, isn't it freeing when you think about, I can't undo this. No amount of my struggles or my doubts or my worries can undo that which has been cemented in eternity past. Doesn't it? feel freeing and you feel a lot more grateful for God that he has you, it's not you have him. This is why Paul has the resources for joy that he has. And this is why you could have the resources, resources for joy as well if you are able to wrap your mind and your heart around this idea of the fact that God has chosen you if you are in Jesus before the creation of the world. So that's what starts off this crazy long sentence, the past reality of election. But it keeps going. Right, Because now he starts talking about uh, the present reality of adoption. And here's where I get this from. This is in verse 5. It says, uh, In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Okay, just think about what adoption is. Adoption is you getting a completely new identity. You get a completely new status. You come into this family that you are not biologically connected to, and you get a new name, you get new family members, you get new rights, new privileges, uh, new inheritance, you get a whole new identity. Uh, There are uh, some friends of mine in Dallas, Texas, named Todd and Robin, and they just recently adopted this beautiful little girl from Guatemala. They were down there doing mission trips uh, a number of years ago, and they ended up Uh, seeing this beautiful little girl and said, you know, she is living in a horrific situation, uh, a a dump, uh, dysfunctional family, a completely impoverished uh, context with which she was living, and their hearts really uh, went out to her. And so what they did was they fought for her for two years to adopt her, and they eventually did. But here's the question, why? (laughs) Why would they do that? They didn't owe anything to this little girl. There was no obligation. It was purely... This act of, we love you, and we care for you, and they brought her into their family. And so now, what does this little girl receive? She's now living in a mansion, (laughs) compared to what she was living in before. She gets a new name, she gets new brothers and sisters, and she is now as legally, uh, she is legally as... What, is, what am I trying to say? She has just as much right to the inheritance as the biological kids do. Right? It's, it, when my friend Todd and uh, his wife Robin pass away, this little girl will have just as much rights to, to the inheritance as his biological children. And that is the same idea. When you are adopted into God's family, you get all of these rights and these privileges and these benefits. And one of the benefits that Paul begins to speak of here is redemption. It's right there in verse 7. In him we have redemption now that's a nice religious word what does that mean? I'm sure we could take a little a poll and everybody would have a different idea about what that means here's what it means it means to be bought out of slavery it means if somebody who's in bondage somebody who is in slavery somebody comes to that person and purchases them out and they are liberated and freed but okay what are you, what are you freed from what are you liberated from at least what this is talking about Well, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Meaning, you are liberated from the prison of your own guilt. That's what Jesus does. I'm sure a lot of y'all have seen the movie... um, uh, 13 Conversations About One Thing. Uh, it's, it's a movie, I don't know when it was made, Matthew McConaughey's in it. He plays this kind of young, hot shot lawyer where he's all about justice and standing up for what's right and he wants to get into the law system and, and fix, fix the world. And so one night he's out with his friends and he's drinking and he uh, drives home and uh, he's intoxicated and hits this uh, woman who's crossing the street in, in a dark alley and kills her. And so now he Uh, is left with this decision of, what do I do? But he keeps driving. In one moment, he undid everything that he was standing up for as this lawyer for justice. And so, he's left with the rest of this movie, not just with the cuts and the bruises from that little jolt from when he hit that woman, but he's also left with the guilt. And as the story unfolds, you begin to see what he does with that guilt that just will not go away. Every single morning he gets up and he, and he looks in the mirror and he's got this bandage on his forehead and so he takes off the band-aid and he takes out a razor blade and he cuts, he, re, he reopens the cut on his head and then seals the bandage back. And he does that every single morning until he eventually gets uh, sick. He has this guilt that will not go away and him doing that is his way of, of paying for it, of atoning for his own sin, of saying, this, if I just cut myself up, this will make things even, right? The guilt that a lot of y'all are feeling tonight, y'all have similar sort of strategies on what to do with it. You, it drives you to pay for it in one way or another. And so for a lot of you, it, it probably doesn't look like cutting, but for some of you it may. Some of you it may look like uh, actually cutting yourselves, and, and I think that all forms of cutting begin... I believe, as a form of of self-atonement. But for for the rest of y'all, my guess is that you find a different strategy to get out from under the guilt that you feel. And so for some of you, you just get drunk, and that's just an easy way out. Or uh, you just busy yourself with activity and school, or uh, you run to the fridge, um, or you uh, beat yourself up with as much guilt and as much shame and just thinking, if I just feel bad enough about this long enough... That'll pay for it sufficiently. But friends, if you are in Jesus, you can abandon these self-atonement strategies. You don't have to pay for your own guilt because that is what Jesus has done. It says in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. He is the one that was cut on the cross so that we no longer have to cut ourselves. He is the one that was, was you know, paid for it so that we no longer have to pay for it. We don't have to beat ourselves up anymore. If you are in Jesus, that is the present reality. That is the present benefit of being adopted. You are redeemed. Everything, and this is what this means, every sin that you have ever done are currently in the middle of doing or will do in the future is paid for. This is why we sing that song here at RUF sometimes, Arise, Arise My Soul, Shake Off Your Guilty Fears. Shake off your guilt. You have somebody who has taken responsibility for it. And you need not feel it, and you need not try to pay for it yourself. Okay, another movie reference. Y'all remember that movie, um, Double Jeopardy? It's kind of a stupid movie from like eight to ten years ago. Ashley Judd was in it. Okay, it was a great movie. I'm getting uh, getting angry looks. Uh, but here's, here's the basic plot synopsis. Ashley Judd's character uh, gets found, uh, gets arrested, gets found guilty, and serves time in prison for killing her husband. But the twist is, is that she actually didn't kill her husband because the husband staged his death and uh, was setting her up. And so she serves this seven-year prison sentence and is released and then finds out that her husband is still alive. And so now the plot of the movie revolves around this idea of double jeopardy, meaning that she can't be held guilty for the same crime twice. That's the law of double jeopardy. She's already paid for that crime, right? So she could theoretically go out and kill her husband and she, would, she wouldn't have to pay for it. And so that's kind of what the movie does. is She's like out to kill her husband now because uh, she set me up. He set me up. And so in a bizarro way, that's kind of how the gospel works. is uh, not, that, not that Jesus is out to kill you, but uh, uh, But it's the idea that God will not condemn you for guilt that has already been paid for. If you are in Jesus, and what I mean by that is if if you are someone who has trusted in Jesus by faith, then what God does is He says, (coughs) I cannot hold you responsible for your guilt if I have already held Jesus responsible for it. If He has been cut, if He has been the one that has paid for it and taken the penalty, then you have... No penalty to worry about. You are out from under the guilt. And that's what that means, to be, uh, to be redeemed through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And this is what Paul is looking at and saying. This is a present reality. You have this if you are in Jesus. So why are you beating yourself up and doing all the self-atonement strategies that you have? Paul starts this sentence with this idea of the past reality of election, and he gets freaked out, and he starts writing, and he keeps going, and he starts talking about the present reality of adoption, but he will not finish. He's kind of throwing out all grammar rules, and he, before he closes out this sentence, he, he looks again, very briefly, at the, final, at, at the future reality of unification. And I get this in verses uh, 9 through 14. I just want to look at this briefly. <coughs> For the past few years, uh, my wife Catherine and I Have developed this little howl tradition, little family tradition that we've started, which is uh, uh, it's kind of lame now that I think about it. Every every uh, Christmas season, we do a jigsaw puzzle. It's the it's the only time of the year we ever pull out a jigsaw puzzle and work it and do it. But it's you know it's kind of fun for us. So we clear out the uh, kitchen table and we dump all the pieces out, and so you know we like to individually turn over every single piece and so they're all turned over and then we set up the box so you can see the picture of what all of this is supposed to you know, look like I mean you've done a puzzle before you know how this works <laughs> and, um, but you know at the beginning it's, it's always really just like kind of defeating because you're like how in the world are all of these pieces supposed to make that like it's just a total it's a, it's a total mess here's why I bring that up is because your experience of the world is that same exact way You move out into the world and you feel how broken and fragmented and fractured the world is. And there is something in your gut that says this is not the way it is supposed to be. And what you're doing in that moment, you may not know it, but you are comparing your experience of the world to this idealized picture box and say that is the way this world is supposed to be and what I'm living in right now, the pieces, the mess of it all, this doesn't fit. There is a discontinuity here. And when you do that, you are living in the tension of a broken world compared to this idea that you ache for and that you long for of a world put back together again. I mean, just just look at the world right now. It is uh, a mess. There are wars and oil spills and uh, hurricanes and tsunamis. There is something about the cosmos that just seems out of joint. Look at your own relationships. You know, parents get divorced. Uh... Boyfriends and girlfriends break up. Uh, Roommates get annoyed with their roommates and then avoid each other completely. Right? I mean, your relationships fall apart. Look at your own life. I mean, just look at yourself. Your bodies break down. The fact that, uh, or I'm sure many of you have had your hearts broken by somebody else before. And there is the sad but undeniable reality that everybody is going to die. There is something broken and messed up about the world. And there is something in your gut and there is something in mind that aches and says, God, what are you going to do about it? It's like looking at these pieces thrown everywhere and say, what are you going to do about it? Well, he tells us in verse 9. I'm going to just read verse 9 and 10. It says, and he, that's God, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, and here it is, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together, under one head, even Christ. God is going to bring the pieces back together again one day. He is going to undo death itself. He is going to fix the hostility between people. He is going to usher in a new and recreated world without guilt and without tears and without death. And he says, This new world is yours if you are his. Let's put that inheritance language in verse 14. This new world, this world made new without death and without guilt and without the tears, it is yours if you are his. But for some of you, uh, your spirituality is this individualistic, narrow view that Jesus just loves individual souls and wants to extract them to this place called heaven, and that's it. And if that's what you think Christianity is, then it really basically boils down to you and Jesus, meaning it becomes this selfish, consumeristic thing where all you think about is how many quiet times I've had or how much I've been praying or how intense worship was for me. And I mean, all those are good things and necessary things, I believe, but you see how self-focused this can be where it's just all about you But when you let the biblical vision of a world reunited and made new begin to shape the way that you think and expand your vision of what God is going to do is not just healing individuals, but healing the universe, you know what this actually does? You begin to find yourself gradually moving out of the Christian ghetto and you start to develop a heart for the university and entire communities and social structures and the nations and creation and environment, the environment. I mean, you, you see what I'm saying? You you have a bigger cosmic vision of what God is going to do because he says he's going to re this world back together and make it right one day. And as we're going to find out next week in a really crazy counterintuitive thing is that the instruments that he chooses to bring about this Fixing of the world is y'all. But we'll talk about that next week. Let me wrap up here. Um, Paul bundles these three things together, election, adoption, unification, and strings them together into this long, run-on sentence of the century, and he's freaking out, right? I mean, it is like he's looking at a double rainbow and saying, it's so intense, and uh, he's you know, screaming and laughing and crying all in the same moment. And so here's the question I want to leave you with tonight. Do you have anything in your life that comes close to this? Anything this lofty and profound and deep and huge? Do you have this kind of vision? Because if you don't, and if you look for excitement anywhere outside of what Jesus has done in the past, is doing in the present, and will do in the future, then the options that you're left with to to appease your boredom Is alcohol and grades and a better figure and your religiosity? And those are lame options, honestly. The invitation for you tonight is to begin to look through the same lens that Paul is looking through. Do you see this? Does this capture your heart? Or better yet, are you participating in these very things that Paul is talking about? Consider that an invitation for y'all tonight. Let me pray for us real quick. Father, I, pr- I pray um, that you would give us eyes to see um, the beauty of what you have done, of what you are doing, and what you will do. And I pray that that would capture our imagination and we would be caught up in the wonder of knowing what you have done and what you are doing and what you will do. Father, you are at work. We take great uh, joy and comfort in that. I-, I pray that you would help me to see it and to believe it. Pray that you'd help these folks here as well to see it and believe it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.